This week, we talk about math, <laughs> because who doesn't love a podcast about math? But seriously, we talk about saving money and also answer some of your burning financial questions. Here we go. Welcome to Doing the Best We Can with Eddie Hoffholtz. We, we hope, hope you enjoy the show. <laughs> Thank you very much, Eve and Lucy, and thank you for being here on another week of Doing the Best We Can with Eddie Koffeltz. I am Eddie, and it is really nice to see you. It is nice to meet you on this podcast that actually starts as a newsletter, a newsletter that you can read and subscribe to over at eddiekoffeltz.com. In fact, I'm going to talk about a lot of stuff. All of it's over on that website that you can find in the show notes. But we start as a newsletter, and as soon as I'm done writing, hot off the press, I hit record on this thing, podcast recorder thing, and uh, I read it to you. To that end, it's live, it's unscripted, you're going to hear some stuttering and stammering every once in a while, uh, and I do that intentionally so that you get the most honest, real version that I can present. So that's why we do that. I hope you will enjoy it today on the show. We are on week two of a financial series Actually, week one was last week. If you didn't, uh, well, that was inferred, wasn't it? If this is two, last week was one. But either way, if you didn't, it, it's not like a continuation. So if you missed last week, you don't need to pause now and go back. You'll understand it. Today, we're going to be talking about savings. And we're actually going to get pretty granular, something we don't usually do on this show. Like, we're going to literally talk about math and how to do it. And there isn't really a narrative arc. There aren't a lot of stories in this. We're just going to talk about savings. But hopefully, it's in a way that in some way uh, helps you and serves you in the process. So uh, so that is that. All right. I think that's all we need. Uh, we also on the free skate are going to be answering some of your questions. So would love to answer any future questions. So again, eddiecoffeltz.com, ask your questions. Uh, we will try to answer them on future podcasts or, oh, hey, my kids just got on home. Hello, Eve. Welcome home. All right. All right. Let's go. Here's what I wrote this week. The following financial advice is for informational purposes only and should not be considered professional financial or investment advice. I am not a licensed financial advisor, and the content provided is based on my general knowledge. The responsibility for any financial decisions or actions taken based on this advice lies solely with the reader or listener. Please consult a qualified financial professional before making any significant financial decisions. Issue 35. Saving yourself. As I reflect on this week's topic of saving, I am acutely aware that any broad financial discussions are likely to be incomplete or inaccurate in some ways. As Brianne mentioned last week on the podcast, there are so many layers of privilege associated with this topic, not to mention the endless complexities of each person's situation. Given that, I hope you take this very practical advice in the spirit with which I'm writing it, a spirit of education and usefulness. If you can't do everything I'm proposing, like, it's fine. Of course you can't. I can't do it either. But what I can do is share the little bits of information that I have picked up along the path and offer them to you. Maybe you'll use them now or tuck them in your back pocket for another day. Either way, it's just us doing the best we can. And as we know more, we will do more. So here's what I found on the path. How much should I save? There's a bevy of opinions on how much a person should be saving. 
In recent years, banks have even gotten in the game, offering you the option to allow that bank to round up your purchases by only a few cents and then depositing those pennies in your savings account automatically. Despite the differing opinions and techniques, everyone agrees on a single point. We have to be saving money. Or, more accurately, we need a place or places where we can easily and automatically put a percentage of our money out of our grubby little fingers. Why save? Yet, if you are as wired as I am, (laughs) being told to do something, i.e. save, isn't enough. I need a why. Give me a reason. Some would propose that you save for both an emergency and retirement. But that is an antiquated and, frankly, pretty boring notion. I can't get motivated today about doing nothing in the future. Sure, I'd like a week or two off, but I don't want to get older. I don't want to slow down. And I sure as heck don't intend to retire the way that has become American slang for doing absolutely nothing for a quarter of your life. Sure, I'd like to stop working as much. And yes, I'd like to eat cold pineapple on the beach with a loaded Kindle. But that's a vacation, not a life. And so I save now so that I have money to, at some point, take flying lessons, see the world, give money away, consult for people who can't afford my rate, buy Brianna a paddle boat, and the like. In short, I save for flexibility. Flexibility for today, i.e. not living paycheck to paycheck and having some wiggle room in the event of an emergency or a layoff, and flexibility for the last quarter of my life, i.e. the paddle boat list that I just shared. So again, how much to save? Take two. Well, let's do the math. What I've spent most of my married life doing is following a pretty simple formula. It's called the 10-10-10-70 approach. What that means is you save 10% for an emergency fund, invest 10% for the future, give 10% to charitable causes, and then spend the remaining 70% of your money on the rest of your life. The idea here is that we just if we just force ourselves to part with 30% of it once per paycheck, that's the 10-10-10 part, we'll be good to go. And you know what? If you're not doing this or a version of this already, this is a great starting point. In fact, maybe right now, while you're feeling motivated, you could pause this article or podcast, hop into your online banking, and check the amount of your last paycheck. Then set up some automatic transfers to your favorite charity and your personal savings account. By the way, a good bank should let you one open, open one for free if you haven't done it already. And then, you know what? Buy yourself a little ice cream treat with your newly freed 70%. But... Like most things worth doing, i.e. running a 5K, learning how to bake insanely good bread, finishing a terrible book that you're already 62% of the way through, but somebody you love, who is also your brother, said you were going to read it together. Now it seems to be that you are the only one here at 62% and everybody on Goodreads knows what you're trying to do. And so you have to just keep going 63%, 64%. Sorry, Uncle Jimmy. Anyhow, what you have to do is to make that which is a burden a habit, which will then make it second nature. The way to start is to, and I'm really sorry to say this, start. Right now and forever, you should auto-transfer money from each each paycheck to the 10-10-10 locations. This is actually going to suck at first. And the remaining 70% will seem like not enough money to live on. And if that's actually true and you can't make it on the 70%, then you have to adjust your spending so you can pay for everything. And I mean everything. Ice cream treats, vacations, mortgage, rent, Netflix, everything on that 70%. If you find that it's impossible to live on the 70%, 70%, 
then the math tells us that A, you don't make enough money, B, are spending too much of that money on things you can't afford, C, are in an emergency or financial situation and are staring down bankruptcy or profound financial hardship, or D, a combination of the above. Please know that if you are in an emergency or bankruptcy situations, I beg you to ask for guidance, not money, but guidance from someone who you trust or a reputable financial advisor. Not being able to live inside the 70% requires some real hard truths about our situation. It is good to bring in backup for those moments of understanding. Okay, but honestly, how much should we save? Take three. (laughs) The 10-10-10-70 rule is a great start. And for a decade, it was the only math I did. But over time, as living inside of the 70% became second nature, I began wondering if we could do 67%. What about 50%? Again, it's a privileged position for sure. But if we could lessen expenses and or make more, what could the other percentages become? Right? And what could they do down the road? So here is how we have recalculated. First, we do 10% of each check for emergencies. This category assumes that you're using the pure savings part uh, of an emergency fund. Let's talk about emergency funds. This means that you look at your budget, you have to set a budget, you have to, and you are looking at the total amount that you are budgeted to spend each month. Then you get rid, uh, rid of superfluous stuff that you could live without in an emergency situation. For example, in my life, I've created a few emergency budgets for times when job security wasn't guaranteed or life was about to get much more expensive. Things that stayed in the emergency budget, mortgage payment, groceries, healthcare, critical stuff. Things that were removed, clothing, entertainment, travel. Lord willing, you never have to use the emergency fund, but if you do, you know that you'll have three to six months of padding for critical expenses should the income stop. And then the second thing we save for, and to be clear, we're 10% savings, right? 10% investing, 10% charity. We're still just talking about that first 10%, which we've actually upped to the 19%. I just wanted to make sure, sure, because it's way more clear in writing, I think, than it might be on this podcast. But anyhow, in addition to that 10% emergency category, that doesn't include any of the savings that you'll need to spend money on on things in the future, even if everything is fine and dandy with your income. For example, we currently drive a 2011 rusted Honda Fit. It's doing okay and we'll drive it into the ground, but someday that ground will indeed hit and we'll need a replacement vehicle. The 10% emergency category doesn't account for that. Really, nothing does. So, This is why the savings math now includes a second category where I've added up things that I'm saving for long term and working that into the overall percentage. At this point, we transfer 19% of our income to our savings every single month. Some of it is to keep the emergency fund going, but a lot of it is for... Uh, A lot of it is for the next decade of life. Cars, fixing an old house, the unexpected, which we expect. We keep a little bit of cash liquid. That is readily available at any time. But also, that cash isn't really earning any interest, which we'll talk about in future weeks. But in doing this, we can be pretty loose with our spend category, formerly that 70%, right? And we cannot worry too much about what's happening in the checking account because we know that the auto transfer to the savings account is taking care of the critical stuff. One last word about this. After we fill up our emergency reserves, we don't stop transferring that 10%. We just keep adding to it. 
we've found that the emergency slush fund is helpful for things like a moving truck to Virginia, uh, more unexpected life events, and thinking of new ways to invest and build equity, which is what we will tackle next week. My goodness, coming in at 11 minutes, that is a long article and uh, full of a lot of math. I hope I hope it worked out on podcasts. It's the first time I've written one that I was like, oh, did this translate from uh, the, the writing to the speaking? But either way, if you're not saving, maybe it'll be helpful for you. Okay, I wanted to answer a few questions that came in. Total transparency, there was supposed to be a guest this week. There were some scheduling problems, and then I had a crazy, crazy week at work. And it was just like, no, we're going to do this another time. So I'm going to answer a few questions that I know that I can answer well. So I will just answer things that are inside my wheelhouse. Uh, And I also have a very special guest reader to read the three questions from you. Here we go. Questions from Samantha. Hi, Eddie. I've always wondered if I should be budgeting based on my gross income or my net income. It's sometimes confusing to determine how much I should allocate for various expenses. Could you explain the pros and cons of budgeting on gross versus net income? And do you have any recommendations on which approach would be more beneficial in the long run? Well, thank you, Samantha via Lucy. Yeah. um, So this gross versus net is an interesting conversation because it's often to me looked at as one or the other, right? And I think that like, like the idea is that we're either giving the most we can or something less than that. Just to be clear, in case you don't know what gross and net is, think of it this way. Gross is all the fish in the whole ocean. Net is the fish that you pull out of the ocean. So you see your paycheck and what the actual number is, the amount of money you get paid that you deposit is the net, but you get paid more than that. But then they take out for things like social security, taxes, all that good stuff. So gross is the big number. Uh, net is the the smaller number that you get paid. And the gross versus net conversation is typically like framed as like, do I want to be more generous or less generous? So I think that we can kind of dispel that because I think in an ideal world, if we had all the money, we would all want to give, save, spend the most we can, right? We would all do everything off of the gross. I think that like maybe not, maybe you're a little scourgey about it. But generally, like, I think it'd be like, yes, I'd like to give 10% of my gross to charity. I would like to save 10% of my gross. I would like to invest 10% of my gross. And I think that ultimately that is a, that is a good goal. That being said, there has been some shame around, like, uh, well, I know in churches, there's been a lot of shame on tithing 10%, and that 10% needs to be the gross. Now, I have heard it said that, we are not about trying to give or tithe the radical minimum standard. And the idea is, you know, wouldn't you give God your very most? And of course you would, but sometimes we can't. And sometimes that's really hard. And sometimes we've never given 10% of anything, but we haven't given 1% of anything. We haven't given a single percent of our net or gross. And so to give anything to save anything is a big step And so I don't actually subscribe to the which is the right thing. I subscribe to the what can you do right now? What is the very best that you can do in this moment? You just heard me talk about it. Like, and I'm not going to talk about all the percentages of everything, but like, I guess we are saving off the gross. We are saving more than the 10% of our net. 
that is not some sort of ethical standard that we have held ourselves to. It's because we can. And as we've gotten better living inside of the 70%, 68%, 50%—right of that amount that we can spend, we have been able to live more into the gross than to the net. But there have been plenty of times in our life where we have uh, done our 10 percentages based off of net. And in some ways, we still we still do. And so I think you do the best you can with what you've got. Um, and I think maybe hopefully turn down the shame a bit. And every once in a while, like maybe every six months, go back and reassess. Like, could I give a little bit more? Could I bump up any of those percentages I care about? A little bit more to retirement, a little bit more to charity. And then you'll find yourself answering the gross and net question on its own. So I hope that helps. I hope it doesn't cause more confusion. All right. Thank you, Samantha. Here's the next question. Question from Andrew. Hey, Eddie, I've been disappointed with my current bank services and fees, and I'm considering stitching to a different one. However, I'm not sure which criteria to look for when choosing a good bank. Can you provide some guidance on what factors I could, I should consider? Are there any red flags I should watch out for during my search? Yeah, Andrew, thank you. Uh, that is a really good question. A question that I don't have a full, full answer to, but here's where I've come to with banking. So there are a few things. First, I need just for our financial world, I need a, I need an online bank, banking environment. So there are some, and basically they all have that now, but I need a place where I can deposit a check via my phone. I can uh, transfer money around. I could see at a moment what's happening. I need to be able to do this from my phone. Um, that's basically all banks. I think the last time I switched banks, like a decade-ish ago, that actually wasn't a thing everywhere, but it's become a real critical part of our life to be able to to do that. And so I, I am looking for the online experience, but but moreover, um, I did I mentioned the access to free checking and to fees. Uh, there is a barrier to entry that is fairly unjust in the baking industry, where if there is a fee charged to hold an account there, um, it, it really limits people's ability to save money and to invest money and to hold money in a bank. And that is a justice issue. And so um, I say pushback from banks where there is a pay to play uh, mentality. Listen, actually, I don't say that for you. I say for me, I push back on banks where there is a pay to play mentality, where there is a have and have not I want to be at a bank where anybody who's trying to save anything and is making any amount of money can afford to bank there because, right, like a, a small percentage or a monthly fee, if it's under, you know, $500 or something like that, is a massive chunk of of someone's income, right? I just don't want it to be for the people that that uh, that wouldn't even notice, you know, a couple bucks uh, a month. Like I want it to be for all people. So my hope is just from a justice issue, looking at a bank there. And of course, uh, again, not a financial advisor, but I make sure that the bank is backed by, you know, all of the, what is it? FDIC, all that good stuff. Oops, my phone alarm is going off. So uh, those are the two things I look for in a bank is uh, online banking environment and the ability to open accounts uh, or at least the basic accounts, like a checking account, a savings account for free, because uh, maybe I don't need it for free, but a lot of people do need it for free. And I want to be at a place that allows for that. So that's my best banking advice and my best banking thoughts. Of course, other things, obviously, like proximity to the bank. Can you get cash out if you need to? Are there ATMs and all of that? Those things are really helpful. But the two primary ones are, are again, that, that electronic possibility and also the, the, the justice issue for banks. So there you go. All right, last question. Lucy, 
Question from Olivia. Hello, Eddie. It feels like married individuals generally have more financial flexibility due to combined income of both partners. As a single person, I feel like I don't have the same advantages in terms of income and financial opportunities. How can I still achieve financial stability and flexibility as a single person? Are there any strategies or tips you can share to help me maximize my resources and make the most of my financial situation? Ooh, Olivia, okay. Uh, Yeah. So in my experience only, it has been convenient at times. When I was in school, Brianne uh, carried the, the, the income. And think vice versa at times. And so, yes, there has been kind of a convenience to there being two incomes and to playing hopscotch with that. Um, I don't know that it's an advantage as much as it is. I mean, I guess it is. It's okay to call it an advantage. I guess, yeah. But I also just, I push back to that because I don't want to think it's, I don't want the inverse of it being a disadvantage for anyone to be single financially. Like, I just don't, I don't believe that it's a disadvantage. I would think that um, there is still the ability to budget to consider what you're making to have less expenses to forecast and to save for the future and i think that generally like i i don't think that any of the financial advice i'm i've considered so far i don't think that what we talked about last week and even though i mentioned uh brianne this week and last week and probably every week because she is my best friend and affects my life a whole lot i don't think that the idea like that we were talking about this week about savings is is uh, specific to having another person in your life or having another income. I still think we're looking at 10, 10, 10, 70. We're looking at our income. We're looking at our expenses. We're creating a budget and we are doing the very best we can to, to save and to give and to invest. Now, yes, the economics of scale change if there are two incomes coming in, but also it changes the expenses. Oh, the cat is meowing in the background. It also changes the expenses. So I think that ultimately, like you, you, this comes down to math. (laughs) It really, it just comes down to math. You absolutely look at your budget. If there's ever another budget to add into this, you put it in there and the numbers all expand, right? It's more money. It's more expenses. It's still a percentage of the whole. Um, And I think, and I know that there are a lot of people who are single, who are, well, loaded, but even the ones that aren't loaded are doing a great job in building a future and considering investments and considering real estate and building equity and all of these kinds of things. I I think it is just purely a question of math and it is neither an advantage nor a disadvantage. Uh, It's just a different equation. So I hope that answered your question. I fear I may not have gotten to the deeper thing underneath it, but I just believe in you and I believe in people that are not on two incomes. I also believe, honestly, that this math, sorry, now I'm getting into it, works in the complete opposite, right? Like if we're on a very low income, right? We try to have the lowest expenses we can have. We try to find 10% of less income, but we still, it's all a percentage that should scale up or scale down. Expenses should scale up and scale down. And in theory, the math should still work. We, we understand why uh, things could fail, but but I think that it just continues to scale, and this isn't about the amount; it's about how we are working in percentages in those amounts. My goodness. Okay, thank you for those questions. I hope the answers were somewhat helpful. Let's close things out. 
As always, thank you to Uncle Jimmy for editing the newsletter. And uh, if you want Uncle Jimmy to edit anything for you, you should contact him. Uh, Check the newsletter, check the website. All of his information is there. Uh, We'll be back next week. We are still talking about this financial series. Um, I'm aware that this is, you know, in episode 35, this is probably the most different episode I've done. And so I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. If this worked for you, if this left you <laughs> ice cold, if you thought it was just too much of me talking, which it was a 20, what, 22 minutes of me talking straight, uh, I would just love to know what you thought. And also if, if it was helpful for you, if you have any other questions. One more thing to remember is that in a couple of weeks, we're starting the advice column. We still have a spot left. So if you have a question, I would love to publish it. I'll publish it anonymously and would love to consider your question. So email me, eddie at eddiecoffolds.com or... Of course, everything is in the show notes. Thank you for being here. I look forward to seeing you next week on Doing the Best We Can.